Thanks, Terry. The last time I talked of an evening was at Columbia, and I congratulate Rare Book School on the transition from New York City to Charlottesville, from street merchants to saucer magnolias, with apparent <laughs> seamless ease and felicity. Not long ago, one of my students turned upon me the very question I had put to her. Who is your hero? Of course, Carl Rollins left first to mine. It's ruining your... What is the light doing to you, Terry? It's shining in people's eyes? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's ideal. Um, thank you very much. Uh, is it offending anyone now? Okay. Well, anyway, I asked this student, who is your hero? And of course, Carl Rollins left first to mine. But he is no longer with us to justify that judgment. And all I can hope is that tonight he will be once again among us and that each of you will leave this hall knowing more about the world in which he worked and feeling something of his presence. Late, sorry, we were a little jumpy there. Late in 1914, Bruce Rogers and Carl Rollins began a half year of work together at Rollins' Dyke Mill Press in the village of Montague, among those rolling foothills of western Massachusetts. Rogers had come there to see through press several books. One of them was Morris de Guerin's Centaur, first to use the Centaur types. And here today, Carl's handiwork, still at Montague, the Roman and the black letter, regularly regilded. Well, there they were together at the Dyke Mill, Rogers revealing to Carl and his pressmen nuances of printing damp paper on the shop's ponderous Colts Armory clamshell press, opening and closing, drawing momentum from the axle of the turbine, which turned as gravity drew pond water through the blades. Here's Rogers' watercolor of the mill, and that same elevation today seen through the saplings. They worked together into the spring of 1915, when the peripatetic Rogers moved on. But think on this. Within three years, each found himself busy in a separate country, changing for all time the face of university printing there. Rogers in England and at Cambridge and Rollins at Yale. Perhaps that winter at the mill, here drawn in pen and ink by Bruce Rogers, perhaps that winter at the mill had been the obligatory retreat from which in due course revolutionaries issue forth ready to reshape the world. But what could have drawn Rogers to Montague in the first place? Why would this gifted, versatile, dapper man ever have chosen to spend the best part of a snowbound winter in the company with Carl Rollins, the one-eyed craft printer on the verge of bankruptcy? It was the perverse magnetism that draws opposites together. Rogers confesses in his memoir an enthusiasm for craftsmanship is a better approach to printing than through the studio. And this from Rogers, the studio artist, who could draw anything he chose, who cut and moved tracings and proofs about, but who rarely touched type or fed a press. And he continues, Rollins, and here is Rollins, easily comes first as the master craftsman. At Yale, his propensities for handwork entered the larger field without diminution. The printing of the university bears that desirable, indefinable quality of having come out of the workshop rather than off the drawing board. So what brought Rogers to Montague in that winter of 1914 and 15 was the opportunity at first hand 
to work with this man Rollins, shown here in maturer years, to work with this man who was so many things Rogers was not, who put pipes into the composing stick and fed presses with his own hands, and who held that the quality of the worker's life was worth more attention than the end product, that in fact the worker's environment set the level of art. From noble lives came beautiful things, from degraded lives the ugly. Now where would such ideas have come from? Well, predating Rollins the social thinker was Rollins the printer. He was born in 1880 into what we now term an upper middle class family, the oldest of three sons of the owner of a railway transport business in Newburyport, a coastal town above Boston. Carl was 13 when pneumonia carried off his father, but not before the father had presented him with a golding official, a small platen hand press with which Carl issued Stamp Collector's monthly magazine. News of the stamp world. Here a clever Chicago gang of counterfeiters flooding the country with spurious stamps. One cover solicited advertisements. You may have this space for a year for $3.25. And it was clearly successful. Clients came from Fuchao in China. The boy brought his craft skill to college. He helped support himself by printing menus on the dormitory's clamshell press maintained for that purpose. He entered Harvard as a special student, exempt from Greek and Latin, free to take only those courses that appealed to him. Special students were barred from the bachelor's degree, but that hardly bothered Carl. He was there to use time as he saw fit, and how he used that time is clear when later he wrote, the arts and crafts movement was new. Ideas of Carlyle and Ruskin and Morris were translated into arts and crafts societies, and some of us swallowed a rather large dose of those ideas. Embedded in that dose were such Morris maxims as art cannot be the result of compulsion. The labor which goes to produce it is voluntary. And the true secret of happiness lies in taking a genuine interest in all the details of daily life, in elevating them by art, instead of handing the performance of them over to drudges. His first job after college general factotum in the office of a rural newspaper. This first job dissolved in a year when the paper failed. But by this time, he knew where to look for work. He showed Daniel Berkeley Opdyke of the Marymount Press such samples of his work as this and this. But when Updike offered to hire him, Rollins did not sign on. Let us look at another principled, stubborn typographic man, Stanley Morrison in the late 1950s, flown from London to the glass-walled IBM structure which rose, rose up amid the whiskey grain meadows of Kentucky. Morrison was there to give an opinion of his Times Roman type being drawn for the strike on composing machine. And as he was about to pass into the drafting room, someone trotted up to him. Oh, Mr. Morrison, before you go in, just sign this. A sheet of dense legal print, the sort of thing corporate Americans regularly sign without reading but not Morrison. He stopped, scrutinized every word. No, I will not sign it. I'll not bind myself never to divulge what I see behind those doors. So the type drawings had to be brought out to him as he slumped in the Miss Vanderoa lounge chair in the lobby. Scrupulous intransigence. And so it was when Updike offered to Rollins the job. 
He had set one condition. Rollins must not start a printing office of his own for a number of years after quitting Updike's employ. Rollins declined the job and years later confessed, my long friendship with Daniel Berkeley Updike began then. He had met others too, Will Bradley, who recommended him to the proprietor of another distinguished Boston printing house, Karl Heinzemann, who as a child had come to Boston from Germany and had been raised to admire William Morris. Heinzemann's shop was producing such work as this, Oliver Herford's Alphabet of Celebrities with borders and initials by the architect and type designer Bertram Goodhue. B is for Bernhardt, who fails to awaken much feeling in Bismarck Barabbas and Bacon. <laughs> Carl worked at Heinzemann's for several years. He planned and handset the job work we see here. In that printing office, his affection for the vigorous Gothic alphabet was strengthened by the confluence of two forces, William Morris's romantic restitution of the English black letter and, of course, the national inheritance of Mr. Heinzemann. You'll come to see how Rollins remained thoroughly at ease with the black letter long after others had lost interest. But today, of course, because those vigorous heraldic shapes were turned in the 30s in Germany to a dark purpose, the Western world is denied and will for a long time be denied the comfortable use of that great segment of its typographic heritage. Well, Heinzemann gave Karl more than practice with the black letter. It was there, standing at the type frame, turning out day by day the work we see here at the proofing press and at the lock-up stone, working beside real journeyman compositors. It was there Rollins acquired the breadth and discipline of a professional. But he was a deliberate creature, not at ease in the hectic city. Besides, he saw in his own career no movement toward the life prefigured prefigured in his college readings. Members of the Boston Society of Arts and Crafts disappointed him. They seemed willing to touch only the veneer of industry, as he put it, without trying to smash the archaic social form of it. In Boston, Rollins saw no determination to replace profit-making with a sounder foundation for industrial life. Profit-making, pitting nations in competition against each other, driving them to war and war's desolation, profit-making, drawing manufacturers into wars of price-cutting where the shoddiest products are forced upon consumers, price-cutting wars among the workers themselves, each fighting to undersell his colleagues in the hope of escaping jobless starvation, all the while transfixing enmity between owner and worker, between worker and worker. And this, Morris had written, is how we live. In 1903, a vision of how we might live appeared to Carl. It was the vision of new Clairvaux, a Unitarian minister, believed the time had come to revive the life of those hill towns and villages of western Massachusetts that had been emptied by migration to the factory towns. He set upon revitalizing them, much as St. Bernard of Clairvaux had put life into mon the monasteries of Europe after another sort of desolation. And the utopian community of new Clairvaux would show the way. In the summer of 1904, as the commune's printer, Carl joined the gathering craftspeople. Here he is feeding the clamshell press at New Clairvaux in the village of Montague. He took over the print shop already there, threw out all ill-chosen types, and installed Caslin. 
But his services as new Clairvaux's printer stopped at Christmas time. Suddenly, he lost the sight of one eye. Here, in a touching letter to Joseph Warren Finney of the American Typefounders Company, he cancels an order for cutting sticks and gauges. Owing to serious trouble with my eyes, I find it absolutely necessary to give up all indoor work. It is doubtful if printing will be carried on here at New Clairvaux. In retrospect, his sight loss appears to have stemmed from a detached retina, but diagnosis and corrective treatment had not yet been perfected. Four wasted years followed. Doctor's remedies, eye rest, outdoor life, travel, and projects fabricated by well-intentioned friends kept him far from the lead pipes he loves to handle. Life without printing, he confided, has been uncertain and vapory. But his mother, she was as shrewd as he was dreamy. His mother saw how miserable he was. Carl, she said in 1907, Carl, you printed when you had two eyes. You might as well print with one. <laughs> when he returned, he found new Clairvaux sharing the fate of all communes, the brief life. New Clairvaux had lasted four years, not bad as utopias go, but the basket makers and the butter churners and the wool weavers were squabbling and moving out. <laughs> Indeed, none was happier to watch them go than Carl himself. The community had attracted far too many misfits and ground out too many sloppy wares to please him. And besides, Mr. Dyke was about to sell the village grist mill. Carl bought it moved in printing equipment, and began his most fruitful and fulfilling decade. He perfected his style as a planner of printing. He found clients, and they found him, who trusted him to shape their messages as he saw fit. Indeed, he performed most handsomely on a loose rein. We're looking at shop work run off between 1907 and 17, and they show Carl in the most forceful, most independent passage of his life. He worked so well in the small, and here's larger work, a folder tempting Americans to use British handmade papers. He wrote lucidly and with conviction about printing. In this booklet soliciting work, he tells us that equipment, experience, and enthusiasm are most necessary to the conduct of a successful printing office. The spirit in which the work is approached determines whether the product will be good or bad. The press endeavors to work out each commission with regard to the purpose for which the work is to be used. No arbitrary style is allowed to interfere. There is no fadism about conditions, but everything is done to add to the comfort and convenience of the workers. On one side of the building is the mill pond, which furnishes us with water power, and on the other is a wide green meadow. Beyond in every direction are the hills. Our hope is to have a cheerful country workshop where we might keep hard at work on good printing. It is tempting to linger on the social value of such country workshops, but they are only fully justified as they result in a larger artistic output. And here in the midwinter budget, a five-inch tall publicity piece Carl printed in January of 1916 using Bruce Rogers' drawings, here he quotes a rather complimentary description from the Printing Art magazine. Carl Rollins lives in semi-monastic seclusion in the clean little town of Montague, unquote. Semi-monastic indeed. He had married within the month. <laughs> Rollins deserted the city where he was trained as a printer because he finds in the country the kind of life he wants. He contends that a man who does good work can live anywhere, provided, of course, he isn't eager to become a millionaire. 
It's good to have men like Rollins who raise up their voices against the commercialism of the age. Well, in this poster, the voice is raised. Type beneath the border reads, quote, printed by a member of the Socialist Party. In a more graceful vein, his type specimen broadside. And this appeal, why not use Bodoni types in your printing? Shows the spirit of one who had handled the real Bodoni volumes he found on the shelves of the Harvard College Library. And he was forever revising the press's letterhead, trying this typographic mood in that period style and relishing it. He printed his, the personal checks of William Dwiggins, artist, type draftsman, book designer, clearly following an airy Dwiggins layout. But it is here to remind us that at Montague, Carl contracted particular friendships with two peers. Bruce Rogers, we already know. Rogers was brilliant, fun to be with, everyone said, but 10 years Carl's senior and quite preoccupied with himself. The Rogers-Rollins friendship continued lifelong. One thing Carl's delighted in occasional sallies into the typographic territory Rogers had explored. In the wake of Rogers' Pacioli title page appeared this poster at Yale, the same border. A Montague press letterhead done after Bruce Rogers' extended stay there shows they shared a delight in those faint rules that define the conventional manuscript page. The line surface again when at the close of their careers in 1948, Carl touchingly asked Bruce Rogers to design this little Yale book using Fritz Cradle's renderings of the coats of arms. But on balance, Bruce Rogers stood in Rollins' debt, writing in it from England in 1919 to Henry Watson Kent of the Metropolitan Museum. Rogers confesses, if Rollins were only still at Montague, I'd go there directly. I was happier there than any other place I have tried but I believe he has almost dismantled the mill. Yes, by 1919, Rollins had dismantled the mill's print shop and brought the equipment to his new Yale job down in New Haven. Whatever might have been the satisfactions of life in the Massachusetts Hills, he was not one to dangle a new wife and infant above the chasm of insolvency where he had spent the last decade. Besides, his wife Margaret had the wit to see things as they were, and Carl was nearing 40 years of age. The Yale Press hired him to manage its manufactory. What a disaster. His standards for so many jobs to be reprinted, it was financial ruin. <laughs> After 18 months, he was asked to confine his work to the typographic planning of jobs with the faculty and staff clients. Of course, at this, he was infinitely more adept. But it is from correspondence with his closest confidant, Wiggins, that we learn how unhappy were his early years at Yale. To Rollins' plaint, Wiggins replies, you and I will always earn our livings by doing things that we do not like, because the things that we like to do have no earning power at all. But that does not mean that we can never do the things we like. We can, if we are sagacious enough. This encouragement from Dwiggins, a true peer his own age who shared with Carl the fear of blindness, this very caring man helped Carl survive the shocks of those first Yale years. The advice was, hedge your bets, diversify. And he did. Carl set up his own press, an Albion, in the library of his house. The imprint read, at the sign of the Carabates, the plumb line and the motto something Carl longed to believe, great is truth 
and it will prevail. Wiggins produced this drawing after a bit of nagging from Carl. No, I haven't forgot the printer's mark, writes Wiggins. The hand of fate dangling the plumb bob rises up, rises up to smite me almost every other day. It was on the Albion in his, new, in his home in 1923 that Rollins printed a lodging for the night for the Grolier Club. Here, a press sheet and a title spread with the map of Paris by who but Bill Wiggins. Size small, scale large, just what Rollins did best. We can do the things we like if we are sagacious. And he found other outlets. The Columbiad Book Club was formed in his living room. If you want it to last, he warned, write no bylaws, elect no officers. That was in 1935, and the club's thriving today. He judged shows, designed catalogs for the American Institute of Graphic Arts. Here in 1940, Melbert Carey, on the right of the private press of the Woolly Whale, hands Carl the Institute's medal. He was active in the type of files, and his selective writings comprised a chap book. And Dwiggins must be thanked for helping Carl to reconcile the comfortable life he found himself living at Yale with the rather more rigid socialist precepts. Dwiggins wrote him in 1922, art has nothing to do with democracy. You must get that out of your head. You want to serve the state by setting type nicely. That's a mistake. Old man Mollis led us all astray by his dream of Democrat art activity. Sweat that out of your blood and start pleasing yourself, and you will have cured one trouble in your state of affairs. So began the cure. Carl paid increasing attention to the rewards of craftsmanship and less to alterations in society. True, after the Great Depression, he indulged himself by writing, in effect, I told you so, we overproduced, now everyone is out of work, just as William Morris had predicted. But the commitment... But the commitment to social change evaporated. You cannot enjoy the patronage of a university funded by the oligarchy of New York and Connecticut. You cannot let them feed your family, then call for their extinction without inviting the charge of hypocrisy. <laughs> Queen Marie Antoinette enjoyed the conceit of playing dairymaid, but she returned to dine at the palace table. The Rollins commitment to social upheaval became something like that. I witnessed its last flutter while sitting beside Carl's widow at a university dinner two decades ago. Dining hall workers were on strike. No amenities, silver laid askew, vegetables tepid. Somehow people were coping, but not dear Margaret Rollins. The family tradition, impatience with sloppy work, was making her very uncomfortable. <laughs> Finally, she burst out, Greer, I cannot imagine what more the strikers can expect us to do. Carl always voted socialist. <laughs> so much for Rollins, the political disciple. He drew his fame, of course, in the wider world from the books he planned for Yale University Press. When he started there, he had no real peer in academe, and a, the direct common sense he brought to complicated text problems, to overwritten title pages, to binding spines, was prodigious. These are the sorts of things the American design community thinks of when it remembers Carl Rollins. In the early 1930s, Yale issued the first of some 45 volumes of Horace Walpole's collected papers. It became the prototype for such projects not only at Yale, the Boswell papers, papers of Thomas Moore, of Benjamin Franklin, but it helped guide other universities 
setting up literary factories after the Second War. And his work was always noticed. Most American Institute of Graphic Arts, 50 books of the year catalogs, carried at least one Yale Press book designed by Carl Purington Rollins, and usually several. The longer he remained at Yale, the more at ease and playful he grew. Look at this, the bibliography of the surgeon Harvey Cushing, Cushing done in 1939. Carl had it set in Cushing types with no apologies. I have often wondered if in Britain, for example, there might have been some counterpart to Carl at Yale. Imagine if Will Carter, in the mid-1950s, had locked his basement ramp in Lyons Press and walked down the road to head the book design department at Cambridge University. Would he have been happy? Would the books have changed that much? After all, university press books are less personal. They're corporate products, drawn toward a vortex of similarity. Each must be a book that can sell. And who know better about that than the salespeople? Two, it's limited by the standard paper dimensions and press sizes, and the author's expectations. How many times must Carl have heard, Carl, we feel the professor would like his next book to be large and thick, and we cannot afford to disappoint him. So the press books show neither the scale, nor the force, nor the endearing aberrations we found in the work from Montague. Heaven knows Carl was making the bulk of the books from one universe, American university look more consistent and interesting than those from the other universities. And even later, when Conkright came along to do Princeton's books with practicality and grace, Carl continued to make eminently sensible, inviting, legible text pages. An interesting display. Sound work done in a way which showed without question, this is a Rollins book. But when he was not doing Yale Press books, the freedom he felt at Montague returned. A neighbor had given him this sketch, said to be from the hand of William Morris, and that sort of thing found its way into Yale job work. When the university received its Gutenberg Bible, Carl celebrated in the Library Gazette with this fanciful page in cunable overtones, monotype polyphilus, only just then made available. And another piece for the Library Associates, clearly with its roots, in the work at Montague. Carl's forthright diploma design done in the 1930s will use as Gaudi's Hadriano. It survives untouched today. He found a growing number of rewarding diversions when Elmer Adler's Colophon for its 1938 finale invited distinguished printers and publishers to provide sections. Carl brought to that book page the sort of tales he loved and which convention and cost had barred from the pages of scholarship. The Limited Editions Club had him design Snowbound, John Greenleaf Whittier's poem celebrating the New England winter. But let us return to the Dyke Mill for a moment and peer through a window to find Caroline Rollins, Carl's younger daughter, in the very rocking chair that had once belonged to Whittier, a distant Rollins cousin. And the volume itself done in 1930. Remember this poem. We'll see Carl two decades later touched by its magic. Well, Daddy did not like to teach. So says his daughter Caroline. If by this Carl meant he was impatient with contrived projects, we can sympathize. Still, all through the 1930s, Carl did teach a formal course in, 18, in English bibliography. It's titled 18th Century Printing Office Practices. Here, ripe for paper conservation, is the 1934 student registration card of Donald Gallup, 
now retired curator of Yale's collection of American literature. He's responsible for acquiring the papers of Gertrude Stein and scores of others. He's author of the standard T.S. Eliot bibliography and one of many who remember Carl Fondly. And with reason, the course was fun. They composed and printed this ode for the 400th anniversary of the Queen's birth. And Carl's lecture outline is revealing. Two phrases are highlighted here. Skill of hand and eye necessary. And 18th century practices not very different from earlier. But after 1800, a change comes. No doubt Carl made them understand that this was a depressing change. First of all, because man had forsworn the economy of scarcity, which, he's, which was, he said, the dominant factor in the printed product of what sometimes seems to me the finest era of our printing history, that is, the 18th century. The 18th century printer had frequently only one or two faces of type to use. Usually he had his text type, Caslin or Baskerville, a few sizes of display letters, and a handful of ornaments. I speak of the economy of scarcity as helping and not hindering the perfection of typographic style. The story of type design illustrates this point. Up to the early 19th century, there was but one style for printing as for the other crafts. That is the contemporary method of design, which all printers followed as a matter of course, varying their interpretation of it according to their individual capacities and preferences. But all printing of a given time was generically the same. Then came the breakup of the styles and the loss of the continuous connection with the past. There you have pure Rollins, the economy of scarcity, the continuous connection with the past. The other depressing change to come after 1800 was our submission to domination by the very machines we had created, the domination of our time, of our freedom, of our standards, of our peace. Carl's preoccupation with and outspokenness about the dangers of industrialization and the rewards of craft printing became the focus of his greatest influence. The early work was simple, human, it was right. Its standards were the best. Now apply them to industry, a rather daunting order. But that's just where he put the pressure, and in that sense, there is no more effective disciple of William Morris, there was no more effective disciple of William Morris at work in American printing than Carl Purington Rollins. He left his most enduring impress and handed on to us his greatest legacy, not by the example of the hundreds of books he planned for Yale Press, not in speeches at exhibit openings, nor in the regular book columns he wrote for the Saturday Review of Literature during the decade 1927 to 37. It happened here, in this office, at number 143 Elm Street, seeing people nine to five Monday through Friday. Yale was smaller then. Everyone knew everyone else. Those who needed printing, deans with course announcements to issue, athletic directors in search of football tickets, faculty authors of Yale Press books, librarians looking for call slips, they all came to Carl. And because he planned all the printing, there was an uncontrived cohesion. You can't buy that sort of thing today. In the 1940s, I sent off for college applications and course listings. Yale's were the only memorable ones. Classic type, carefully fitted, very bookish all of a piece. When you entered Carl's office, you were treated to a rich polemic on the love of doing good work on the rewards of sound craftsmanship. He once held in his giving it the book design apprenticeship at another university, and in urging it on one Yale student asked, did you ever consider doing for a living what you actually enjoy? 
What an uncommon question to have put to a youth back in 1946. I was that youth. Do what you actually enjoy. Those who worked with Carl were touched by his fascination for the uses of the past. They shared his excitement when he installed composition matrices for the newly revived Bembo, Bell, Caslin, the Garamans, Polypolis, the display-type Centaur, and the craft-inspired Albertus and Perpetua. He was forever reminding them that it was the confraternity of learning that helped launch printing and keep it afloat in the first critical years. There was and remained a mutual dependence, the scholar knowing, I am nothing if my thoughts are not disseminated, and the printer wondering, where would I be without the scholar's patronage? And further, and this is the heart of it, he knew that the grace with which an idea is set forth in print has everything to do with the value that people will place on that idea. So in 30 years at Yale, Carl trained two generations of faculty, of staff, of alumni to hold the act of printing in peculiar veneration. Most of what's at Yale today affecting the wider graphic community has been generated by the residual momentum of that one man's presence there years ago. A notation in Carl's diary of the early 1940s visited today by wild-eyed student named Baskin. <laughs> One wonders whether Leonard Baskin's Gehenna Press imprints would have evolved as they did, or indeed at all, had not Baskin, then enrolled in the School of Art, grown close to Carl. Gaylord Donnelly, heir to the American Printing House, remembered how in the late 1920s Carl would invite him and other undergraduates to examine in the library stacks the masterworks of the master printers. Remembrance of those afternoons in the library with Carl made it all the more rewarding for Gaylord Donnelly years later to open the composing room of the Lakeside Press to Carl's successor, Alvin Eisenman, to experiment with several sizes of barbu type, the heavier of the two fourniers, which Stanley Morrison had ordered recut for Alvin's use in the volumes of the Franklin Papers. Now, just as genetic botanists, backbreeds vegetables, enabling us to enjoy the very maize the Aztecs tasted. So Yale, in 1930, created the colleges. Each was expected to exude... Each was expected to exude the singularity of one of the slowly evolved autonomous colleges at Cambridge and Oxford, a noble goal quite closely approached. It was to one such college that August Heckshard, on graduating in 1936, donated, with Carl's encouragement, donated his boyhood printing press and types. That was the first college press. Today, each of the dozen colleges boasts its own print shop. Some produce the things that keep the colleges going, posters, concerts, programs, invitations to master's tea. In this way, they help certain students work their way through school. For others, they provide the simple pleasures of learning to set type, to print, and to create something of their own. Further, they are laboratories for training graphic artists. And an increasing number of undergraduate college printers now go directly into graphic arts careers. Here's the work of one, Lance Heide. Yes, the college presses are a phenomenon, not academically administered. They are regenerated from one year to the next by a laying on of the craft hands of dedicated students. There's nothing quite like it elsewhere. At year's end, the college printers hold a ways boost and prizes are awarded for noteworthy examples, memorialized by certificates from the hand of one student printer, Charles Altschul, grandson of the founder of the Overbrook Press. Well, as 1948 neared, 
the Yale community knew Carl's retirement would leave a black hole in the firmament. How was Yale to preserve typographic distinction at the press and meet yet another need? Carl, in 30 years, had so ennobled printing that when the art school's curriculum was reviewed, the consensus was add graphic design and photography. To meet the needs of press and art school, McGraw-Hill's young design director, Alvin Eisenman, was lured to New Haven. For although Joseph Albers arrived at the same time around 1950 to be the school's great attraction, the Bauhaus painter and color theorist, it was Alvin, shown here with his students touring a paper mill, it was Alvin who kept up the pressure to put the new program on the map, to draw into its faculty luminaries like designers Paul Rand and Alvin Lustig, Leo Leone, Alexei Brodovich and Bradbury Thompson, illustrator Robert Osborne, photographers Walker Evans and Herbert Notter, and the like. What this did, of course, was transform Yale from a place where one typographer was qualified to plan printing into a place where a number of faculty and great blocks of students were able and eager to design graphic work for reproduction. This stone was cut by John Denson of Newport to hang on the wall of the Yale Press Building, where until recently, graduates of the graphic design program headed up the design staff following Alvin Eisenman in unbroken succession. For over 40 years now, these students, graduating with a degree of Master of Fine Arts from the School of Art, have flowed quite regularly into the publishing houses and design studios and art school faculties. To support the burgeoning interest in printing, the library in 1968 set up the Arts of the Book Room, a rich mine of example and inspiration. Things have reached the point where retiring designers pray they'll be asked to give their books and papers to Yale so that they will be enshrined along with 19th century wood engraver John Warner Barber, with Fritz Cradle, Clarence Hornung, Fritz Eichenberg, and of course, Carl Rollin. The Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library, that wondrous box of marble, holds along with the papers of the Strawberry Hill Press those of the more recent adventures like the Overbrook Press. And recognizing in the mid-1970s, it was time to pay conscious attention to what Carl loved, the typographic tradition. There were established lectures honoring his memory. Calligrapher Arnold Bank packed the aisles with two millennia of the Roman alphabet. By closing time, dear, voluble Arnold had reached the 8th century Merovingians. We blinked the lights to clear the lecture hall as he sped through the remaining 1,200 years in something like three minutes. <laughs> but the momentum was up. Bob Middleton made ready on an Albion press and students took pulls from one of Thomas Buick's actual blocks. Jacques Hizdowski showed how, with a simple knife, he cut the image of Yale's central Gothic tower on the side grain of pear wood. The series culminated in a day-long symposium, the centenary of Carl Rollins' birth. The question, will the small private letterpress craft printer have any impact on the shape of the electronic alphabets of the future? There were words from the platform and the floor. Printer, designer, historian Adrian Wilson had flown in from San Francisco, and the inventive electronic typographer Chuck Bigelow was there. Harry Duncan from Omaha, dean of the private press printers. Joe Blumenthal, whose spiral press was one of the last of a generation of distinguished letterpress printing houses. And David Godin, who did so much for the revival of fine press publishing. And August Hecksher was there. His hobby shop, remember, had become the first college press at Yale. He has spent a life in public service to the arts with a stint as consultant to President Kennedy. Still, he continues to find time to print books at his high loft press in Maine. Well, there they were at the close of the conference with more questions 
than answers. Then came these next few words of August Heckscher. I like to think, he said, I like to think of fine letterpress printing as I do of sailing. Both I dearly love. But no one in the Western world earns a living today transporting cargo by sail from port to port. Sailing is no longer part of the economic of survival, nor is fine printing with the letterpress. Both belong to the economic of delight. And indeed, it was in that economic of delight that Carl Rollins passed his happiest days and left his legacy. In 1947, he wrote this poem. It echoes his cousin Whittier's Snowbound, but with a particularity we can share. Without the snow, for days the naked earth, cold, hard, and clean, has shivered for this downy comforter. Within the warmth, man's noble artifice against the cold restrains the angry protest of the storm. Here, all the appurtenances of the printing house, iron press, marble stone, wooden stands, the cases labeled with their baffling jargon of 12 scotch caps or English black, the smell of ink and paper, and the click of the type and the stick, the tap of the mallet on the planer, the jolt of the coat's armory press as it pinches the sheet against the type. With all the craft, the quintessential joy, the irreplaceable fascination of handiwork in a warm and windowed room while the storm rages and the snow piles up against the mullion. As you leave the hall tonight, each of you will receive these last words in a keepsake that you might remember Carl kindly for the legacy of his life. Thank you.